This is a podcast from the Royal Court Theatre. Series 2 was recorded over the summer of 2017. The following content may contain strong language. Welcome to the second series of the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast with me, Simon Stevens. So, welcome in a slightly unconventional manner, a very special podcast with me, producer Emily, hello, and producer Anushka. Hello. So, things will be a little bit different, hopefully similar, but as, as, as much as we possibly can. So, to begin with, here's Simon's bio. I first met Simon Stevens in 2011. I was an intern here at the court and was tanning in the garden in my lunch break. Simon was here with his play Wastwater and was taking a moment's break from rehearsals. I had watched a preview of the night before, so I asked him about the ending, which left me needing to know for sure whether the character of Jonathan was up to no good or not. I didn't want to decide, I wanted the facts, and here was the writer himself. Simon graciously told me what I needed to know. I now realise, after several years of working at the court and getting to know many writers, how potentially annoying my question was and how generously Simon answered it. A truly accurate representation of this mighty writer. By his own admission, Simon stumbled into adolescence as a lanky, specky nerd in Stockport. By the time he arrived at York Uni to study history in the late 80s, he had reinvented himself as a lean, contact lens-wearing indie kid from Manchester. His natural progression from uni was to join a band, Ovs, and he became the bassist in the Country Teasers, where they recorded such classics as Hairy Wine <laughs> and Go Away From The Window. <laughs> Failing to achieve the worldwide domination they so richly deserved, Simon opted to study for a PGCE at the Institute of Education, which began his career in teaching. I don't know what went down there, but in 1997, Simon wrote his first professional play, Bring Me Sunshine, which premiered at the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Over the next two decades, he wrote shitloads more. Plays <laughs> as varied as Bluebird and Birdland, Port and Punk Rock, On the Shore of the Wide World and Calm and Disruption, Pornography and Motortown, Carperican and Herons, Westwater and Nuclear War, Fatherland and Heisenberg as well as his adaptations of the curious of Inst- I'll do that bit as well as well as his adaptations of the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime a doll's house the cherry orchard i am the wind and the seagull many of his original plays have premiered at the royal court he was a writer's tutor here for the young writers program from 2001 to 2005 and he has held artistic positions at Payne's plough the court and the lyric hammersmith he's won some awards too <laughs> All of Simon's plays, despite their differences in form, focus on the ferocity and fragility of being human. He excels at the presentation of small moments of behaviour which have huge theatrical impact. Fascinated by transgression, violence, fear and our great capacity for love, he has proved himself to be a prolific and provocative voice central to modern theatre culture. Part of this centrality lies in his wholehearted support and encouragement of other writers. From his time at the Royal Court as leader of numerous writer workshops, his enthusiasm and influence have inspired several generations of writers. 
A testament to this is the range of writers who have appeared on this podcast willing to be interviewed by him. Now it's his turn. <laughs> In the country teaser song, Golden Apples, there's a lyric that says, Simon can't walk properly, he has trays instead of feet. But luckily for us, all his fingers aren't teacups. <laughs> and oh yeah, in case it wasn't clear, music has influenced everything he has done ever. Simon Stevens, welcome to your own podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much, Nishka. That was, I think everybody who we do on here seems to find the introduction very weird, but I think that was like, that has levels of weirdness that surprised even me. Okay. <laughs> it was very, very odd. And quite nice as well. I, I think you should do the introductions from now on. No. I think they're very good. <laughs> so, as you often start these podcasts, yeah. we want to know what is your earliest memory of going to the theatre? It's funny because I, I I kind of anticipated that you might have asked me that question. Of that is how it, it <laughs> that's kind how it starts. Um, and I was struggling to come up with a very specific memory. I think my earliest memories of the theatre involve uh, going with my mum and dad and my brother and sister as a family into Manchester to see Christmas shows. Not necessarily pantomimes. I don't have a, a lot of people we talk to have very vivid memories of pantomimes, and I don't. I remember uh, Barnum, the show, uh, the mm. show of the life of the the circus impresario F. T. Barnum, starring Michael Crawford, that I knew Ooh. of the brilliant Some Mothers Do Have Them. I gather actually that he's quite a complex man, Michael Crawford. I didn't realise that at the time as a child. I remember Some Mothers Do Have Them and loved it as a kid and, and, and I, I hope I'd still love it now. But I remember um, going out into Manchester, it was a school night as well. So that was quite exciting to go out on a school night and to go into the city. Uh, were two very kind of sensory impressions that were very important to me. Uh, and I still think I associate going to the theatre with the transgression of going out on a school night and uh, and urban spaces, like going into cities. Yeah. And mm. I find that really, really exciting about it. And I remember really enjoying the show, uh, but especially when at the end of the show, Michael Crawford abseiled from the upper <laughs> circle onto the stage yeah. and st and I, I've said this many times I'm still re I, re I would I would if anybody wants to do any production of any of my plays for any amount of money at all if they promise me that somebody's going to abseil from the upper circle onto the stage then if it can be Michael Crawford that would be really good well. it'd be really good yeah. Michael Crawford in Motortown I think would be really special yeah Michael Crawford in Motortown abseiling from the upper circle onto the stage Michael Crawford in Nuclear War would be really beautiful. I yeah. think it'd be really. We should have thought about that at the time. Yeah. We've got a few more tickets sold if we thought about that, wouldn't we? Hey, it sold Bloody well. Bloody hell! <laughs> how, know, how old were you when you did that? Do you remember? I don't remember an accurate age. I think it was primary school age. So I think it was on. I, I would guess that I was about seven or eight. Mm. Um, I think my. Let's see. I remember. I think my brother went with us, uh, and he's three years younger than me. He wouldn't have realistically gone younger than six, so maybe I was nine. Okay. I was nine or ten, I think. I think. My mum was in amateur dramatics. Right. Uh, and I, on a, you know, we never, we never went to see serious theatre. I never went to see a serious play. 
um, until I was in sixth form, really. Uh, my mum was in amateur dramatics, though, at our local tennis club in Heaton. Yeah, see, my parents were uh, were both members of the local tennis club, although neither played tennis. They always said they were members because uh, it was it was a bar that you could go and drink in and bring your children in at the same time. So I have very early muscle memories of uh, going to pubs with my parents and sitting in the car with a packet of uh, crisps and a bottle of Coke. And then I think they joined this tennis club so they could take us out of the car. (laughs) I used to quite enjoy the coast, quite enjoy my dad had an eight track machine. Um, and I remember, do you remember eight trap machines? I, I don't remember I don't. it specifically. But you but understand what they are. Sound, yeah, you know what an eight track, I mean, I don't really know what an eight track is. <laughs> okay. But he had an eight track machine in the car and he had, I remember, an eight track of the history of rock and roll. And I remember it had Jerry Lee Lewis on it and I used to sit and play uh, Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis over and over again in the car, sitting, drinking a bottle of Coke and eating a packet of crisps. Um, but... Um, uh, when she joined the tennis club, she joined the Amateur Dramatic Society. What was she doing in it? Was she, was she on stage? She was acting, yeah. She was acting. I, I must have been older at that. That must have been like early teenage years. Okay. And I went to watch her a couple of times. My uncle did amateur, amateur dramatics as well at the Alteringham Garrick. I remember seeing him in Great Expectations. And then the main thing, which I've talked a lot about, is doing school plays. Mm. That I mean, that was really important to From me. From primary school age as well? Or uh, secondary school? Secondary school. Primary school, I did like the nativity. I was the shepherd. Yeah. It's very important the Absolutely shepherd performance. I remember <laughs> yeah. second shepherd. Yeah, no, 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 because no, we talked about. Uh, uh, I'm sure I've talked. I mean, I've talked many times publicly about the astonishing production of Wind in the Willows that I was yeah. in, in sick form, yeah. with Wayne McGregor. Were you ratty? No, I wasn't. Do you know? Have you heard of Wayne McGregor? No. The like there will be maybe people listening to this who will be apoplectic that you've never heard of Wayne <laughs> yes, McGregor. I know, I'm sure. Wayne McGregor is like the world's leading contemporary choreographer. Oh. Uh, and he actually worked at the Royal Court in the nineties. He did oh. the choreography on Cleansed, uh, James McDonald's oh, production okay. of Sarah Kane play, um, and was a big friend of Sarah's. I think uh, he went to my school. He played Mr. Toad. I was second ferret. And the which is really it was really it was a non-speaking role. I didn't have so, any lines. Can I just, was this yeah. sick form? This is sick form. Yeah, I've raced through my childhood years. Did you see that? It's like a podcast. Can... No, it's more that you played a ferret when you were. Yeah, I know. In I know. Because <laughs> yeah. by the time I was in sixth form, I was yeah. not doing. It was real, but the thing is, yeah, I think that's right. Was it sixth form? Maybe it sweet. wasn't. Didn't Maybe I'm wrong. Levels? I'm I'm nervous that I was younger than that. What I remember was I went to an all-boys comprehensive school in Stockport, so it's like the worst of both worlds. Okay. There was, like, no girls, and there was no kind of, like, elitist privilege. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, you didn't, you, you didn't get, you didn't, you didn't get the kind of the advantage of knowing that, all right, there might not be any girls there, but you're probably going to be a millionaire. Yeah. You didn't have that. It was just, like, shit. Although, I do think that okay. if I... If I hadn't gone to a comprehensive school, I wouldn't have been a playwright. I definitely think going to a comprehensive school... Why? Is... But it was that key? I think it was really key for me, yeah. I always think if I'd gone to public school, I wouldn't be a playwright. If I'd gone to... I applied to Oxford University and didn't get in, and I think if I had got in, I wouldn't have been a playwright. Mm-hmm. I think I met people at school the like of which I'd never met anywhere else who were from different worlds to me and uh, became 
good friends uh, and I learnt fundamental things about uh, humanity, about the relationship between humanity and economics. And, like still my best mate in Stockport uh, is somebody I met when I was, I was 14. I was quite badly bullied at school. Not badly bullied as in kind of like, mm. but just like constantly. I was, I worked hard. I was a hard worker. I valued school work. I valued doing well at a school where if you did do those things, you'd just be the subject of pillory, which is what I was. And uh, and the, this this guy, Pete Nuttall, the legendary Peter Nuttall, he was like the biggest kid in our class, he was hard as fuck. He was sitting on the back row, and I remember one day him calling out, Stevens, I was like, oh Christ, not again, for what? And I turned around and he said, sit here. And he made me come and sit with him on the back row. I was like, what's he gonna do? And he just didn't, he just wanted to be my mate. I was just like, why are you doing that? So, just thought you'd be interesting. <laughs> and then about a week later, somebody tried to take the piss out of me again and he stood up from his seat, walked over to them, picked them up above his head, walked with him, carrying them over his head and dropped him on the desk, oh. on the teacher's desk. And it was just like, right, nobody's bullying me from now on. So Peter not all. This is like the Beano. Meeting people like Peter Nuttall. <laughs> Bloody hell. Anyway, um, uh, but in that kind of school, the one environment where hierarchies disappeared, where it didn't matter whether you're a teacher or a caretaker or a parent or in sixth form or first year or whatever, was the school show, the mm, school panel. Okay. And, and I just really fell in love with it the absence of hierarchy but I kind of thought if um, if I was any good at acting I probably wouldn't be second ferret I'd probably be up there with Wayne McGregor as like Badger or whatever but I was always I'd always been a writer I'd always but written that's the thing as that idea of you talk about often mm. where you discuss that playwrights get into it either via acting yeah yeah or just sort of through, but it was through acting that you no, thought you got into it, but it, it was because it, you always were a writer. It was because I was all, I was, as long as I can writing? remember, I, can, I, I wrote for fun. I remember the first thing, I, like when I was at primary school, I would just do writing and then bring it to my teacher. I remember like I was writing uh, poetic descriptions, I was writing stories. The main thing I was writing through most of my teenage years was songs. Mm. So I was a songwriter. I really wanted to be Elvis Costello okay. or Shane McGowan or Marky e. Smith or Morrissey because the one th the one literary form you could acknowledge an interest in at my school without getting mocked was songwriting. Okay. So I really wanted to write songs like those guys. And it was when I went to university. When I went to York, I went to, did a history degree at York University. Kind of went there and realised that I had a dreadful singing voice and so I was never going to make it as a singer-songwriter, which still makes me sad to this day. Uh, but I did a few gigs, like singing my own songs, and and uh, they weren't very good. At really. the university? Yeah. 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 I did some gigs in Stockport, right. never did a gig in Manchester, did some gigs in Don't Laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I did some gigs in a room above a pub in Stockport, in Stockport Market, the Edgerton Arms, uh, and did some gigs at York, uh, but then by the time I left York, it was just like, I'm not very good at this. And also, at the same, you know, the you talk about music, like the musical form that I'm most engaged with was, the art form I'm most engaged with was music. Every Friday and Saturday night, we would go on the bus, get on the 192, go into Manchester and watch a live band. 
and it was just like live music just felt as a teenager the most volatile and immediate means of engaging with the world around me that I'd come across. When I was at university, uh, I often tell this story and it's embarrassing every time I tell it, but it's true. All the most attractive girls at York University wanted to be actresses and in a pathetic and misguided and ultimately entirely fruitless attempt to meet these girls, I would go and watch their student productions of things like The Real Inspector Hound and uh, The Cherry Orchard, and they were pretty bad. At the Drama Barn? At the Drama Barn, the drama yeah. Barn. The legendary York University Drama Barn. But um, remember sitting in the Drama Barn thinking, all right, this place shit, these girls are never going to talk to me, but this art form's interesting. Yeah. You know, what if you could tell a story that was as immediate as the kind of things I was the kind of films I was watching so at that point yeah you said you'd written a lot of lyrics had you not actually written dialogue or never written play? dialogue before I wrote my first play before that but yeah the, yeah that was the first the first time I'd ever written dialogue was a play that I wrote ah oh, yeah I did write something in sick form which was a, the very first bit of drama, a fictional drama, was a monologue called Frank's Wild Years, which was a dramatic monologue uh, based on the song Frank's Wild Years by Tom Waits from the album Swordfish Trombone. Wrote that in sick form and read it to Pete Nottall and, and another <laughs> mate of mine, and they really liked it, Ian Rudolpher. And he, Ian's eyes filled with tears, and he was like, you should do something with this. And <laughs> it's really nice, yeah. Um, stop poor boys, you see. We're sensitive souls. The, uh, and I took that to university. We staged at university. I, I co-wrote another play uh, with a, a girl called Fiona Gillard and a guy who's gone on to write more. Uh, it was an adult, a teenage, a teenage fiction writer called Jonathan Stroud, uh, and we wrote a play together. So you were collaborating even then. Even then, I was even collaborating. Then. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but I wrote my first individual plays in third year of university, Good Rocking Tonight. It was called Good Rocking Tonight, and it was uh, a dramatisation of a Lester Bangs short story, called uh, uh, which was based on the Rod Stewart song Maggie May. Perfect. Uh, and it was about an Elvis obsessive and his relationship with an older woman. And it had a live band in, uh, Jimmy P and the Telepines, in which I played rhythm guitar. So I never actually even saw it, but I played guitar in but this show. In we performed in it, and we took that and another play that I wrote later to uh, the Edinburgh Festival in 1992. Oh, right. And by that stage, by the time I left university and was in Edinburgh in 92, I pretty much decided that if I ever did anything other than be a playwright, I'd be in some sense disappointed with my life. So I just was like, I'm going to Edinburgh, I'm going to stay in Edinburgh, and I'm going to be a playwright. That was 92, I was 21. Wow. After you yeah. graduated? After I graduated. In history? In history. All my friends went to London, yeah. and I really wanted to break the umbilical cord. Yeah. Go on. I, well, no, so I was going to say, so actually, um, your decision to then go and study to become a teacher was alongside knowing that you wanted to be a player. Yeah, definitely. I spent, I, I trained to teach in 97, um, and... Uh, I'd been writing plays. I had this really mad idea, yeah. I had the idea that I was going to live in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Paris, Dublin and London before I was 30. I didn't want to be stationary. Coming from a suburb, coming from a suburb like Stockport, 
I had a sense of restlessness, but also quite limited horizons. So I'm sure if I'd come from somewhere else, I might have been like, I'm going to go to Abu Dhabi, I'm going to go to New York, I'm going to go to Greenland. But for me, going to Glasgow was exciting enough. Uh, went to Edinburgh, did two years, uh, and wrote all the time, worked in kind of bars and cafes, but was writing all the time, got involved with the Student Drama Society there and put plays on. I actually wrote Bring Me Sunshine, not in 97, it was produced in 97, I wrote it in like 94. Did two years in Edinburgh, moved down to London, got a job managing the bar at the Riverside Studios. At the same time, I gather subsequently that um, uh, David Mitchell out of Mitchell and Webb was an usher there, but I don't remember him. I don't remember him. David Mitchell was an usher there. The 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 writer and uh, theatre maker Glenn Neath, who uh, is Lizzie Clacken's partner, was oh, yeah, yeah, uh, he yeah. was the front of Glenn, yeah. yeah he was the front of house manager, and I was managing the bar. We had it was a really good time. It's really really good. I, would, I often say if the the best way to to not go insane if you're trying to make it as an artist is get a second job that doesn't make you want to kill yourself. <laughs> And actually working in theatre bars is brilliant. Yeah. It's really brilliant because everybody else is, wants to make theatre. Everybody's really young. And, and with luck, you get to see, see some free tickets for things. And it still happens now. You go to any theatre bar and yeah. ushers and all the rest of it. And they're, they're, all the, they're, they're all the really cool ones. Yeah. I kind of, you, you know, often end up then seeing on TV or you. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And exactly. And, and exactly. practically, you always sort of get served because they don't know who they might be offending. <laughs> yeah. Although no, it was the I I I think it was the with for us and this has really informed me. It was the opposite to that. We were savage about the slightest whiff of pretension. So if anybody was in any sense aloof with us, we would just be demolish them behind their back. <laughs> On the other hand, if anybody was nice to us at all, who we knew to be famous, um, we'd we'd really elevate them. And, um, <laughs> with their pint again. <laughs> yeah, being a real musical snob, I was never a fan, or not since I was about eleven, of the music of Dire Straits. Oh God, I used, my favourite. Uh, were they? I used to fucking hate Dire Straits. And then one day, Mark Knopfler came into the Riverside Studios oh. to see a show, and every round he bought, he tipped us a quid. What a guy! And then and and yeah, I mean you know, but like tipping at all in those days in Britain yeah. was unthinkable. Yeah. But tipped as a, a quid every round. And me and me and my mate was also really hated Dire Straits. By the end of the night, we're just like, to be fair though, great guitar player. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so whenever I go into theatre bar now, I always make a point of like just not being a dick. Going back. I mean, I, sorry. No, no. <laughs> Going back to what you said, that, yeah. you know, the first. Two plays you wrote came mm. from songs. They're inspired by songs. Yeah. How how yeah. long did that pattern go on? For? At what point did you generate an idea for a play that didn't come off the back of a song? Still going on. Yeah, I was going to say it's <laughs> going on for thirty years. There's a, there's Have you not read any my, of my plays? <laughs> the Guardian that has a playlist of oh yeah Simon's, uh, song to play in uh, sort of influence. There's even a YouTube playlist you can listen to. Yeah, no, it's massive still. It's still really massive. But like, what does it have to be one song? Because a lot of writers well, talk about listening to Frank's while years and Good Rocking Tonight were really were were very specifically prompted by single sources. But um, like another other plays I wrote at university were more original ideas. But even in play, you know, even in those plays, the song was really was was really defined. Even in Bluebird, which is my first professional play, 
you know, the originally it was Hank Williams' I'm So Lonesome I Could Cry, and then it became Otis Redding's uh, um, uh, uh, My Girl. Um, I think Otis Redding's version of My Girl. I'd have those songs in my head, and it would be that the effect that those songs had on me was like the controlling idea of what the play's intended effect was going to be. So whatever Hank Williams or Otis Redding or Elvis Presley did to me, I wanted to do to my audience. Yeah? Yeah. Nuclear War, you know, the title of Nuclear War came from a Sun Ra song called Nuclear War. It's not really got a great deal to do with the play, apart from I was in a hotel in Hamburg writing it and... Sun Ra's Nuclear War came on and I thought that's a fucking great title like. <laughs> stealing that one yeah. so yeah it's still omnipresent it's still omnipresent but I think uh, yeah I'm trying to think of examples of plays that weren't inspired by particular songs and find as I'm listing them that that they were all inspired by particular songs so like Bluebird which is often or Bring Me Sunshine was the first one you talked about that was my sixth play so I'd written five plays that I directed myself in uh, like student drama or amateur, you know, rooms above pubs with amateur actors uh, doing it for no money, doing it in the Edinburgh Fringe, doing it in the York Fringe, just trying to get the plays some kind of life. How was directing it yourself? A big mistake, but really <laughs> good. Like, I, I mean, I, I'm... Jack Bradley, who was the former literary manager of the National Theatre, mm-hmm. was the first person in London theatre to really champion me. Right. Uh, he was literary manager of the Soho Theatre Company. And he came up to see a play that I'd written called Sleep of the Just, which was inspired by an Elvis Costello song called Sleep of the Just. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I directed it myself at the Wee Red Bar of the Edinburgh Art School in the 1994 Edinburgh Fringe. Uh, and he took me. he was the first person to take me for a pint to give me kind of like professional counsel. And the main thing I remember him saying is, don't direct your own plays anymore. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't. And I wrote, I wrote Bring Me Sunshine around 94, 95, put it in my drawer, and then moved to London. Just had my first professional contact with any professional theatre, the Traverse Theatre in Edinburgh, which was then the new Traverse. The mm. dramaturg there, a brilliant woman called Ella Wildrich, uh, read read my plays and really liked them and then just when I was getting in contact with her I left Edinburgh, moved to London where I knew nobody, got a job at the Riverside stopped writing plays started writing poems which were like performance poems that, <laughs> that I would I would I would perform at the Riverside Studios on our poetry night and uh, <laughs> I don't, listen, when I do these podcasts, Noosh, I don't think I laugh at the people that I'm <laughs> Um, and um, I thought I was like Charles Bukowski. I would have like a pint of Guinness and a cigarette. In those days, you could smoke inside yeah. and read these shit post Bukowski poems. But they made me really happy, you right. know. Uh, but and some people got, they weren't that bad. They were all right. And some people really liked them. One guy, an amazing guy, who is definitely worth celebrating. And in the spirit of these podcasts, where people want to celebrate people who gave them early leg ups yeah. in the career. There's a guy called Andrew Braidford, who's now an agent and a successful actor's agent. And that those days he was running, uh, and I think still is, the Young Blood Theatre Company at the Riverside Studios. Uh, and he wanted to do a festival of new plays, and he liked my poems. And he said, have you ever written a play? And I had Bring Me Sunshine in a drawer. I showed it to him, and he read it, and he really loved it. 
and it's 11 actors that play yeah uh, and he said well I'm going to do it we'll do a reading of it and then we're going to get the money together and we're going to produce it at the Edinburgh Fringe so he, then he he must have put like five grand of his own money in took it to uh, the assembly rooms because the Riverside Studios had an affiliation with the assembly rooms um, and we did it in the assembly rooms for about three weeks in the 97 festival we had really shit audiences until the last week of the run when the stage and the Scotsman came and gave it five star reviews and then we sold out in the last week which is great amazing. but more amazing you know f far too long ago for you two but like 97 it was the early years of the of Tony Blair's Labour government was a sense of economic and cultural optimism in the UK and in theatre in that, in that Edinburgh fringe uh, Mark Ravenhill's Shopping and Fucking was revived Ender Walsh's Disco Pigs debuted uh, David Harrow was Knives in Hens debuted mm -hmm. um, it was just like all of a sudden playwriting yeah. was quite cool yeah. and people were talking about Bring Me Sunshine in the same breath as like <laughs> Harrower and David Gregg and Ender Walsh and, and that was and it felt quite quite good yeah. to be a playwright in 1997 and and by then I was just really committed to just doing it but yet you went and trained as a teacher yeah because me and Polly my wife mm. uh, girlfriend as was wife as is um, uh, we wanted to have a kid we wanted to have a family mm. and I couldn't support a family on my mm. uh, bartending wages so I would need to get a proper job so I went to train to teach English um, and Went to Dagenham, trained in Dagenham in Essex, uh, which was in extremely uh, difficult work and inspiring. Like anybody I know who's been a teacher finds it exhausting and inspiring alike, I think. Um, with the hope that I would get the money from teaching to be able to support the family and get the pension and all that, and, uh, and maybe be able to write the spec in my summer holidays or whatever and, and keep going. And, um, you know. I'd written another play, the last play I wrote when I was bar manager. It was one of the weird things about being a bar manager is if you, if you or being a barman at the Riverside Studios, if you worked after after midnight, you got a taxi home. Yeah. So for somebody who had no money, I had an unusual amount of taxi rides. Right. Yeah. Uh, and it was the time that me and Polly were thinking about having a child. Uh, and I think quite often plays can come when you uh, lock into that, which terrifies you most. Uh, and I started spending a lot of time thinking about the terror of being a father. At the same time, I was spending a lot of time taking taxis across London <laughs> when I would be the only sober person in a city of drunks. Like, bartending works great for writers yeah. because you're sober when everybody's drunk around you. Uh, and uh, I, I'd been inspired by Jim Jarmusch's movie Night on Earth, which is a movie about taxi drivers in different cities on, on the planet. And I thought, ah, oh, it'd be good to write a play about a taxi driver. So I wrote a play which was in my head. It was cast by the it was going to be cast by the original cast of Bring Me Sunshine. There's going to be one role for each of them, okay. and it's going to be one night in the life of a London cab driver who was sober while the rest of the city was drunk, mm -hmm. who before the play had killed his own child, and that was the play which was uh, uh, he he drove a Nissan Bluebird just because oh. I saw a Nissan Bluebird on the street. Uh, and, and I called the play Bluebird yeah. after his car, sent it to Andrew Brayford, mm -hmm. who said, I love this, we'll definitely do it, but you should send it to the Royal Court as well. Because right. Ian Rickson was artistic director of the Royal Court, he was a new artistic director, and Andrew said, I think he'd be right up his street, yeah. send it in. 
So this is not by this time it was 1998. Were uh, you were you quite no. aware of the Royal Court? No, this, not, really. not really. Not really. Not no no. That being a career not at all. Of... No understanding of it at all. Not like no. I wasn't a. Like when when I came here as resident dramatist in two thousand, I re, it's the first when this building in Sloan Square, the Sloan Square building reopened. Mm. I remember coming and feeling a real fraud because we were here on the first day it reopened, and going round the theatre with Ian Ricks and Elise Dodgson and Graham Wybrow and James MacDonald and <laughs> saying, "Oh, don't we have amazing memories of this this building?" <laughs> and, and and going, "Yeah, yeah, we do." But I just had no, I'd never <laughs> been there, I had no idea. I know now that if I'd said, "You know, it's my first time I've ever been here," they'd be as excited about that yeah, as anything sure, else. Absolutely. But at the time, I felt like a fraud. Um, Right, can I tell you, can I do an anecdote? I'm being quite anecdotal at the mm, moment. Summer 1998, training to be a school teacher, finished my um, uh, dissertation early because I wanted to watch the 98 World Cup. Oh. I was sitting at home watching every game, Mexico, Germany in the quarterfinals, Mexico and beating Germany 1-0. Mm. The phone goes. Uh, I answer the phone and... It's a very professorial, quite plummy voice on the other end, the kind of voice I'd never really heard before. Uh, and he introduced himself. I said, hello, my name's Graham Wybrow. Is this Simon Stevens? <laughs> I was like, yeah. He said, hello, I'm, I'm the literary manager of the Royal Court Theatre, and we've read your play Bluebird, and we think it's rather terrific. And I was so... So astonished. I mean, I knew the Royal Court existed. Yeah. I knew about it. I knew that Look Back in Anger was here. I remember when Blasted was here. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the idea that they'd read my plays and that they liked them, I was so excited. All I could think of was saying was, Mexico are beating Germany! <laughs> <laughs> and Graham was like, are they really? How very good. Now, can you come in and talk to us about your play? So I went in, they did a reading of the play. My wife came to the reading. She was like seven months pregnant. Like two months later, the 6th of October, 1998. Uh, a date I'll never, never, never forget. I get back from hospital after Polly's had 24 hours labour and given birth to Oscar, our eldest son. And in my memory, as as soon as I walked in the door, I got a phone call from a woman called Aoife Mannix, who worked with Oliver and Amashun in the Young People's Theatre, to tell me that they were going to do Bluebird in the Young Writers Festival in 98, on the same day. <laughs> Glenn Neath said to me, do you ever get the feeling you've already had the best day you're ever going to have? <laughs> and, that, and, you know, yeah. that was, yeah. And so did Bluebird mean that you... Didn't you, you stop teaching? No, I had to teach. I had to absolutely. Teach. I made no money off Bluebird at all. I don't think I made a penny out of Bluebird, but I did get a first commission. Mm. On the opening night, Ian Rickson called me over to tell me he wanted to commission me to write a play, and I was really excited, but didn't really know what it meant. No. And when he told me that what it meant was that they were going to give me two thousand pounds, on the understanding that the next play I write that I show it to them before I show it to anybody else. Mm. I couldn't fucking believe it. I'd never, as a teacher's wage, about that time, that, that, in that time, my monthly wage was about £1,300. So £2,000 was the biggest check I'd ever seen. I'd never seen that amount of money. And the idea that I didn't have to give it back, even if the play was shit, or even if I didn't write the play, I just thought, you fucking idiot. What do you... <laughs> But um, it was amazing, and then and then I wrote a play. It took me a year to write. It's the longest play I've ever written. Uh, 
I was writing it when Oscar was a baby in his first year of life. I was I was my first year of being a school teacher in Dagenham. <clears throat> it was a play about a pub on uh, in the throes of Christmas. That is an old working man's pub, a boozer, right. in a city where boozers are disappearing and there was no space for them. And it was kind of four working class guys coming into this pub before Christmas, telling sad stories of their lives. And I couldn't get it right. I couldn't get it right. And then I went to see a play called The Weir which had been running for six months in the West End. And we were sitting watching it thinking, ah, this is a play about a pub in which four guys come in and tell stories of their lives. I wonder if this is going to be a problem for me when I deliver my play. And true enough, for many other reasons, I delivered a play which eventually became called Christmas. And... uh, and, and 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 they rejected it. They turned it down. They all turned it down a week after. The, and this is like this is like what 1999. So I've been trying to be a playwright for eight years. Yeah. Uh, I built my whole sense of self around it. Yeah. Wanting to be a writer was all I wanted. And I had my first opportunity, my first commission, and they rejected it. And the sense of deflation was profound. I could imagine. You know, and I, I remember just broken hearted. I was broken hearted. But you still got paid. I did still get paid. Didn't have to give the money back. And the pr- play was actually produced really beautifully and rightly not at the Royal Court. Right. It was eventually produced at the Bush Theatre in a really <clears throat> magic direction, uh, production directed by Joe McInnes. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, more important than that, even, was about two weeks later, I got a phone call at home from Ian Rickson, who rang me on a Monday, said, uh, what are you doing on Friday after school? Can you come in and talk to me? There's something I want to ask you. I don't want to tell you what it is. So I thought, all right, yeah, weirdo. <laughs> do that. Uh, and, and hung up. And then he rang back about 20 minutes later, said, I'll change your mind. I'll tell you what it is. We want you to be our resident dramatist next year. <laughs> So you can. Uh, <laughs> I didn't anticipate getting emotional about this, but it's meant it changed my life. Absolutely changed my life. Um, it meant that I could leave teaching uh, and spend a year in this theatre, in the Royal Court. Uh, go to the script meetings on Friday. Go to the planning. What is now called the planning meetings. Read plays, study plays, share an office with Graham Wybrow, who fundamentally taught me how to write. Uh, learn my craft would have Stephen Jeffries who's literary associate then as like a mentor uh give up school teaching spend more time with Polly spend more time with Oscar it was you know it was it was a phone call that completely changed my life and and, and it was through that that you wrote Herons yeah yeah I mean Herons is a play that came out of my experience of teaching in Dagenham mm-hmm. to a degree and being inspired by those kids and those brilliant sparky fighty fucked mm. up damaged brutal poetic kids <clears throat> and then sitting on the friday script meetings i noticed that every so often there'd be a play which would come in uh and it would have i remember there were all these plays would come in and they'd have like teenage characters in who either didn't say anything at all mm. you know would just be like a character on stage who didn't actually say anything or they would talk in a way that was uh that was just not at all like my experience with teenagers, and I thought I'm gonna I'm gonna honour those kids in Dagenham, and write a play which is inspired by them and which in which they're allowed to be as complicated as the kids that I taught, uh, and and that's what I did. I read you know, uh, uh, Graham Wybrow here gave me like so many plays to read outside of the weekly script meetings. Mm. 
you know, play, you know, reading list after reading list. It's just like read, read Vedekind, read Buchner, read um, uh, Franz Xavier Kreutz. I didn't know any of these people. He just like filled my brain with plays to read from the last hundred years of playwriting. Uh, at the same time, I was associate, uh, not associate. I was resident. I had a shared residency at the Royal Exchange in Manchester, and Sarah Frankham, who was then the literary manager there, was doing the same. And she was giving me some Shepherd plays to read, and she was giving me, uh, uh, I remember uh, reading uh, uh, Durenmatt, she gave me all these amazing plays. Uh, and and they all kind of, I, I knew that the next play, I remember, I remember doing a reading of Christmas with Dominic Cook directing and he said to me at lunchtime during the reading, this is before they rejected it or while they were rejecting it, he said, your problem is, Simon, that you write too well. <laughs> I remember thinking that was a really weird problem for a writer to have. And in the same uh, same year of my residency, uh, Raman Gray was associate here <clears throat> and he told me the meaning of the word playwright, which I didn't know until I was earning my living, that the W-R-I-G-H-T in playwright... Yeah you know, comes from the verb which in its past tense is to have wrought, mm. that we're not writers, we're shapers, we write our plays, we've, we, we, we've not written our plays, we've we've wrought them. You know, I'm not a writer, I'm a write. Yeah, I didn't know that. And I thought that is going to be my subject in my residency year. I'm going to learn the craft of structuring a play mm. and not write it, I'm just going to shape it. And the last thing I do with Herons is going to be to write the dialogue. <clears throat> and I just developed a whole process of planning a play over the course of nine months and without writing a word. Uh, I had work, amazingly inspiring workshops here with Dominic and with David Lann, mm. and Stephen Jeffries, great figures who really inspired me. Went to the Friday script meetings. And man, you know, I always say about those Friday script meetings, they're every fortnight now, they used to be every week. There's, I'm not an intellectual, I don't think of myself as being an intellectual. Yeah, uh, but there's been very rare the times in my life when I've just thought, "Fucking hell, Stevens, you're just thick." <laughs> and sitting in that room with Katie Mitchell, James McDonald, Dominic Cook, Elise Dodgson, uh, as they talked about plays, you know, Max Stafford Clark, mm. you know, <coughs> extraordinary brain, mm. arguing with these people and just feeling an idiot. I thought, after about three months, I'd, I was so unhappy on those Friday script meetings. And this is what I'd wanted all my life. Yeah. And I remember saying, right, okay, you can go one of two ways. You can hate the rest of the year, or you can go, right, I'm going to learn how to do this. Yeah. And I got Graham to tell, teach me how to read a play. Yeah. Uh, and would just have him sit in Graham's office, and he'd give me these, these like tutorials with Graham Wybrow. And then I just taught myself, and then by the end of the year, I was like, all right, this is what I think. And I learned how to read, but, and, um, and I wrote Herons at the end of that year. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, learned how to read a play. Yeah. Like, what does that actually mean? I think the danger is that it's very... If, you, if you're somebody who comes into writing for theatre without a, a training in acting or performance, there's a danger that you can read a play as a literary text. Mm. Yeah? So that what you're reading is just the words. Yeah? yeah? And, uh, and actually in theatre... Language is just one of many elements that a playwright needs to have control over. You know, it's why Chekhov plays are actually quite difficult to read because there's no beautiful sentences in Chekhov. There's nothing that remarkable. But it's what we do when we make a play, I think, is we, we marshal energy. It's about, I always think that we're map makers rather than literary figures. You know, and our job is to marshal energy. 
and it's not the thing that matters in playwriting, in my opinion, is not the things that people say to each other, but the things that people do to each other. Uh, and it was getting my head around that, being able to read a play and go, all right, their sentences might be beautiful, the language is great, but these characters aren't doing anything. This is just the writer writing beautiful sentences. There's no action. These plays are inert, and, and I learned that here that year. And, and then working with Ola Anamashawan at the Royal Court Young Writers Programme, you know, galvanised it all. So you're, you're, you're here and you're planning. Yeah. You're researching, yeah. you're reading, you're yeah. doing all of that to to have the end goal of Herons. Yeah, that absolutely. I knew yeah, I knew it was gonna be a place set in Dagenham, I knew it was gonna uh, I knew it was gonna be a place set in London. Right. Somebody uh, the one of the best observations, an old teacher colleague of mine uh, who lived in Stepney saw it and said, oh, it's, it doesn't really work because it's a play about Dagenham kids set in Stepney. <laughs> uh, I would say <laughs> I would say its strength is that it's not right. really naturalistic. Okay. You know, Graham Wybrow said it's actually a northern place set in London, right. <laughs> which is quite interesting. Yeah. And I think they're both right. It's not because it's not a naturalistic play, Herons. It's a kind of poetic play. Yes. Um, and um, so that's what I was doing. Yeah, that's. Um, Where were you? Were you in a room? You had a desk? You had. Pens? In, uh, <laughs> I did then, and it's something I've started doing again now, is I, I, I would handwrite a lot of notes. I I'm like now more than any time in my career, notebook handwriting is really fundamental to my process. Okay. Like I do a lot of it now, and I did a lot of it uh, for Herons mm. and kept kept. I remember with that play, I remember a kind of A4 hardback notebook, uh, and then it would be typing up the notes that were relevant, and then coming up with a plan. I was writing in the room that became uh, my son's bedroom. Okay. Um, uh, eventually, but I, I wrote a lot of plays at home. I wrote every play to, up to uh, Harper Regan, I think I wrote at home. Um, and started writing at home again now, which is quite nice actually. Um, but I've always I've been able to write anywhere. You know, it's just a weird that you know, I did I did rewrites of uh, the Cherry Orchard in a kind of like family holiday in the kitchen of a family holiday I'm sure with Polly like, really appreciates yeah, 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 she, you know, she didn't, you know, the, the kids being at an age where they don't really give a shit what we're doing with them yeah, anymore, yeah. so it didn't really matter. But it's like a house full of like 10, 15 people yeah. and I'm just sitting at the kitchen table doing rewrites, I can do it. Mm-hmm. I did uh, re- rewrites coming back from the holiday recently just sitting in the passenger seat of the car. I don't need a special environment to write in. Yeah. When I've got my computer on, it's like I go into a tunnel yeah. And it's just me and the world of the screen. Because some people have said about you know the idea of working in cafes or mm. externally feels like they're going to work. Well, or less like that. The idea it's not private that they that yeah. it's, it's too open and yeah. That, but other people like that. Yeah, For a, that yeah, yeah exactly. Or, and I think I could go either. You, you I, don't mind. I, I I like writing at my kitchen table at the moment, mm. but I also like writing. Uh, I quite like writing in cafes because you. I kind of think if I waste too much time on the internet in a cafe, somebody's going to know, and and then it's just be like I've done yeah. bad work. It's like you can't, you can't, you know, you can't, can't work in an office and spend all day on the BBC football website because eventually people notice. <laughs> and although I could take my laptop to a con, you know yeah. a cafe and spend all day on the BBC website, it would feel as though I'd be lying. So I I I I don't mind working in cafes. I don't mind working at home. Uh, I had an office, which I've still got, we're losing soon, 
and wrote punk rock there, and that's great. <coughs> uh, I like I quite like writing on attachment. Okay. I quite like it when a theatre gives me a room, even if the room's really pokey. Yeah. Like I wrote Waswater uh, in a tiny cubby hole in the site. Yeah, um, yeah. and just knew I had it for two weeks, I've got to get the job done. I quite like that. Mm. I quite like knowing there's a deadline and you've got to do the job. Um, I think I'm quite Protestant in that sense. Okay. Or quite Northern English. You take work seriously, yeah. you do your job. Mm. You know, I've got very little patience for romantic notions of genius. Right. You, mm. When you go to work, you go and do your job properly. And I think that's... Like, when I was a barman, I was a good barman. Mm. Like, the fridges were always stocked. You know, when I worked in a supermarket, my facing up, I did it as well as I could, yeah. you know. <clears throat> and I think that's I think that's something which has lasted I, I me find well. That a northern thing as well. It's, yeah. It's very much a, I don't know if I'm necessarily very good at it, but I would take it seriously. Yeah, it's really, really important to me. Yeah. And the idea if I meet if I meet a writer and they and, and they don't take it seriously, it offends me. Right. <laughs> it offends me. Don't take yourself seriously, but take your job seriously. Yeah. yeah. Do your job properly. It's really, it's really, it's really important to me. What's what's a working day like now? So, yeah. Do you do you regiment? Are you sort of timing? Do you make yourself? Yeah. Work? What what the the thing to understand uh, for me at the moment um, is I think the, the like I kind of fundamentally know what I'm going to be doing at work for the next two years. I've got like two years of work lined up. I've got about seven or eight different jobs which I've committed to over the next two years. And I tend to work backwards from imagined delivery dates. Yeah? Yeah. So I'll know when I've got to deliver a certain play, if I'm going to deliver the next play, if I'm going to deliver the next play. And I know how much mulling time I need. Mm. So so with my like with my with my like making of a play, I kind of like divide it into several stages. <clears throat> the first stage is uh what Peter Brook described as the formless hunch, okay. yeah, where you just get a sense that there's something you're interested in and you don't know what it is. Mm. So the one I'm working on at the moment is a commission for the Royal Exchange and for about three years I've had this hunch that I want to write about the north of England, yeah, okay. uh, and didn't know what to do with it. I just had it, just thought, I want to write about the north, don't know what that means, but so, I think a problem that a lot of playwrights make when they start writing is they start writing too soon. So they'll get an idea for a play and then they'll be writing dialogue by the end of the day. It's not fucking ready. It's not ready. The joy of playwriting is it's slow. Yeah? So let it be slow. It's like I really have no tolerance for kind of speed response to current affairs. Bullshit. Our genius is the slowness of our art form. Let an idea percolate. If, if, if the idea's good after... Uh, three weeks or three months or three years, then it's probably a good idea. And so the next stage after would be a kind of mulling, and then I'll do like research, and it's research is important to me. So with the with this play for the Royal Exchange, I kind of identified five places in the north of England that I'd never been to, but which defined my life. Yeah. Okay. So I went to Blackpool Winter Gardens where my grandparents met. I went to the town of Ulverston where my mother was raised by my grandmother as when she was a single parent effectively because my grandfather was in the war. Went to Warrington where my dad worked, to Doncaster where my dad drank himself to death pretty much and to Durham where my uncle went to university uh, and went to all those places and met the contemporary equivalent of those figures in my life. So a young couple in Blackpool, a single mother's in Ulverston, 
alcoholics in Doncaster, law students in Durham and businessmen in Warrington and talk to them about their lives. So, and, and would be making kind of notes about those towns and those places and just um, making, a, making a lot of notes, interviewing people and then reading books like reading Paul Morley's Remarkable The North at yeah. the moment and, and making notes on that, identifying plays that are relevant. So Thornton Wilder's Our Town, Aeschylus's Oresteia, and making notes on that. I got this notion that Ovid's Metamorphosis is going to be important in this play. So I'm reading all of that and making notes on that. And bit by bit, kind of like coming up with a constellation of characters. And then I'll do like loads of kind of character exercises on the characters <coughs> and, and get a fuller, a fuller sense of the characters. And then I'll come up with a story and then I'll come up with a plan, which will be a scene plan, which will be how many scenes are they, where are they set, when are they set, who's in them, what do they want, what's stopping them from getting what they want, what do they do in the scenes to get it. Yeah. And then the very last thing I do will be to write it. The last thing, and ideally I'll write it really quickly. The dialogue. The dialogue, yeah. So you say, what's your working day? <clears throat> it depends on what stage I'm at yeah. in that. Okay. So if it's a day where my job for the day is to be reading books, for me, that's as important mm. as writing dialogue. I don't think a playwright needs to do a word count in the way that a novelist would. No. You know, I don't think there's any point doing a 6,000 word a day word count. I think sometimes my working day can involve watching movies right. or it can involve interviewing people about their, you know, their children. Mm. Or, you know, and I've interviewed amazing people in my working life. It's been fantastic. I do a lot of walking. I'm a big walker. And I, I started using voice memos on my phone <clears throat> as a means, like a dictaphone, yeah. to kind of make notes into and then just build up all this material, fill it up, fill the sponge up, and then shape the play out of that. So it depends what, what my job is will, mm. will dictate my working day. It feels, uh, reading other articles and bits and pieces about you, of things that you've said in the past, that your process has, has changed, I think, over the years. Yeah. And that maybe, potentially, with things that you've done recently, say, like nuclear war, maybe your process is changing again, and you're being a little bit more instinctual, <coughs> yeah. rather than necessarily the... Yeah. Uh, Fast sort of planning. Yeah. Is that true? Or yeah, I think it is. No, I think it is. Although I kind of think I'm in another stage, even so. So yeah. plays like Birdland and Blindsided, mm -hmm. uh, Calm and Disruption, Nuclear War, <coughs> um, were written much more intuitively, mm -hmm. you know, really instinctively. And then now I'm kind of going back into the planning again. Okay. I think the thing is, as with playwriting, as soon as you think you know how to do it, uh, you've got to change. Right. <laughs> yeah. And that's really exciting. I think it's a really, it's the, the thrilling thing about this work is that there is a profound connection between approach and process and product. So you've got to stay alert and agile intellectually to what you're doing in the process in order, in order for the, the, the work to be good. You know, <clears throat> I fucking love being a playwright. I really enjoy it. It's like really, like compared to working in, as a school teacher in Dagenham <coughs> or working in Gateways, it's ace. Like my job is ace. I really want to carry on doing it. But at the moment, I've got an acute sense that playwrights and the history of post-war theatre tend to kind of go into a decline <clears throat> from about the age of 40. But is this just linked to where <coughs> you are in terms of your level of success and actually maybe your own anxiety? Yeah, it's really funny, you know. It's really funny. It's really funny. Like I don't think I've ever relaxed 
in terms of my in terms of my career whenever i think about my career i get unhappy i found it really it makes me it's always made me unhappy when i was starting out you know i was living in edinburgh living in london working at the riverside working as a school teacher thinking about my career would make me unhappy because it would just be like well why aren't I having my plays on in these theatres? Yeah. Why do I keep getting rejection letters after rejection letter? Um, in the years to the last decade working here or <clears throat> um, having plays on at the National, I'd always be kind of enviously looking at other playwrights thinking, you know, I'm not as good as them. And now if I look objectively at my life and my work, my body of work now, if I detach myself from me and just look at it and go, it's probably the career of a fairly successful playwright. That's good, you know, I've written a written if you include all the if you include all the versions and adaptations, I've written thirty six plays that have been produced professionally in different mm. countries. Mm. That's and I've can support my family on that's like yeah, successful. Yeah. But 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 I still feel <laughs> like miserable when I think about the career. I still feel miserable about it. I still think I'm on the point of decline. I, the, my current thing at the moment is that I've, is that I'm definitely in decline. But, well, yeah, go on. Well, no, because I just feel like, you know, with Nuclear War, at the beginning of the play text, for those who haven't seen already, yeah. it says a series of suggestions for a piece of theatre. Mm. All of these words may be spoken by the performers, yeah. but none of them need to be. Mm -hmm. So that just feels, with what you're saying there, mm. quite an interesting thing to deliver to you know a group of people that you're going to be working yeah, with yeah I, 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 the distinction i would make there is the distinction between the work and the career so if the career has always made me unhappy yes the work has always been like the best thing ever yeah like the most thrilling thing and the work for me is twofold one hand it's the work of writing down words on a page in order to suggest a night in the theater and i love that i love it uh, and the other is working with actors and performers and directors and other artists, and I love that just as much. So with that particular stage direction, it was an attempt to create a rehearsal room in which everybody was alive and alert and creative, the performers were alert, the director was alert, that there was never an attempt to stage some mythical specious play that existed in my head, mm. like a blueprint that the other artistic teams had to somehow imagine themselves into. Mm. That has no interest to me. No interest. I'm not interested in being an authorial playwright. Deeply, I don't believe that I know my plays better than anybody else. For me, a playtext is a suggestion for other people. And the, the most exciting thing in my working life is watching directors of the calibre that I've been lucky enough to work with take a play and infuse it with a vitality that I'd never imagined. Collaboration is important to you, isn't it? Yeah, it's and like being. It's like being. Yeah, it is okay. like being in a band. It is like being in a band. It's mm -hmm. the same thing, um, yeah, you know. Yeah. And and I and, and it, oh, it's like being in Wind of the Willows. Okay. You know, the company, the company of Fatherland, the company of what's the most recent one would be the Seagull or Heisenberg. Yeah. You know, those rooms remind me of being in Wind of the Willows. It's the same gang mentality. It doesn't matter if you're Ken Cranham yeah. and Anne-Marie Duff. It doesn't matter if you're Leslie Sharp and Nick Tennant. It doesn't matter who you are. We're putting the show on. And we're all working to together. Hierarchical yes. Yeah, exa exactly. Yeah, and it's the spirit again. of collaboration. And the designers are part of the room, and the sound designers working with Ian Dickinson, mm. you know, working with Pete Rice, working with Paulie Constable and Bonnie Christie, 
or you know Chloe Lamford, Lizzie Clack, and the people I've worked with, man, that is so gorgeous to be able to do that, and and a profound sense that in theatre, in a way that is unique, I think, in the arts, the whole is so much more than the sum of the individual constituent elements, mm-hmm. and the alchemy involved in creating that mm-hmm. is exquisite, is magic, is magical. I think. What's I th- your favourite part of it? Like, like, like all of it. I'm like writing it about the model boxes before, but yeah, from like writing it to to the idea of press night. Is there a moment in there that you go? No, press night's miserable. Yes. Press night. Press night's the worst. Often, most Pre- people press hate night. That. I I hate. Um, <laughs> first day of rehearsals are often fun, because for the playwright, the first day of rehearsal is like the the ego moment, because kind of pretty much the plays. Like you've gone through the big hurdle, mm. you've fired your missile into the 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 ventilator shaft of the Death Star, i.e., somebody has programmed your play. Second <laughs> play, the play is good enough. Somebody said, "Yeah, we're going. Let's go." And so you've gone through the hard bit, and now the work starts, and you get to meet the actors, and you hear it for the first time, you hear it spoken for the first time, and that sense of magic, I love. I love the bit that I'm up with the my new play at the moment, where I'm where I'm. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just going to nick an image from Ali McDowell, who I had coffee with the other day. When you're preparing or planning or conceiving a new play, he said, it, what's beautiful about this moment of the work is that it could be anything. <laughs> and and the whole proce- writing process from now on is, is, is taking away things that it can be. So, like, it can't be that anymore until it actually is what it is, and then it's just disappointing in comparison to what it is in your head. Mm. But I, I love all that. I love the writing process. I love the research process, the mulling process, the, uh, the preparation. I love writing dialogue. I love rehearsal. Like, I really love rehearsal. I think probably... How are you in rehearsals? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, there's part of the things you need to ask other people. I think the only... If I were to give advice to young writers about how to be in rehearsal, it's uh, what I try and say that I am, is it's important to remember that I'm working for the director. Mm. That it's the director's room. Yeah. yeah? Uh, and, and I don't know the play better than anybody else. And each director requires a different process. So let's somebody like uh, Katie Mitchell, who I've worked with a few times and really love, she definitely doesn't want me to give notes to the actors. You know, she wants me to give her all, all my notes, and that's fine, yeah, yeah? Somebody like Sean Holmes doesn't care. I can say well, whatever I want to, whoever I want, whenever I want. Mm. Um, and, and that's fine. That's a different energy. Yeah. They've got different energies and work in different ways, and I, I really love that. I love that. I just love actors, actually. Like I, I mean, so in awe of them, you know, watching the seagull, watching Lloyd Hutchinson or Nick Tennant or or Leslie Sharp or Nick Gleaves or any of those people, it's just like what you do, yeah. It's like you have a a dream or you. It's like having a dream, and then the most talented people in the world work really hard to make your dream something that actually exists in real life. Yes, that's. Insane <laughs> and completely intoxicating. Completely intoxicating. I love that. Do you do you write for actors? Yeah, all the time. Specifically, all the time. That character. Yeah. Yeah. Who are you writing for when you're when you're writing? Like at the moment with the play for the the Royal Exchange, I've got a cast list in my head. Right. And it, and it's specific Manchester actors, who and like my favourite Manchester actors. 
It's just like, right, I really want to see what happens if you put, uh, you know, those two people in a scene together. And like, <clears throat> and, and beyond that, in terms of like audience, or does that not come into your... I think there's two kind of two elements to that question. There's on one hand is is kind of like what do you see in your mind's eye? Yeah. Mm. And when I when I see a play, I absolutely see it in a theatre. Uh, so if I'm writing for the Royal Court, I see it in either the theatre downstairs or the theatre upstairs mm. in this building. And I normally see that audience. So if I'm writing a play for the Royal Court, <coughs> I'm kind of writing for the Royal Court audience with all the culture and the history and the wealth and the money and the complicate complications that the Royal Court audience brings. And so the gesture of the play is what would I like to do to those people? Hmm. <laughs> yeah. But then I'm one of those people. It's not a distinction. Yeah. I'm not saying I'm, I'm sitting in the audience with them. And I quite like theatre audiences. I know... It's complicated. I know there's, it's it's damaged with all kinds of senses of entitlement, but I quite often go and have a drink. Like uh, I should just finish the sentence there, don't I? I quite often just go and have a drink. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like before a play's starting in preview, I remember I have vivid memories of looking at the Harper Egan audience arriving or the Curious Incident audience arriving at the what was the Cotterslow and then the Dorfman mm. and having a drink in the kind of uh, outside the green room of the National Theatre looking at the audience coming in and think would I like to go and have a drink with these people and like much more often than not it's like yeah they're alright yeah. people are alright people <laughs> aren't dicks on the whole like to a staggering degree people aren't dicks <laughs> and, and I'm kind of writing for them and I think when I go to the theatre I like to be frightened I like to be shocked I like to be unsettled I don't like to be congratulated I don't like to be flattered mm. I like to go and I like to have my head kicked in or my heart broken and to be changed on a visceral level mm. and I think that I kind of think that's what audiences want so that's kind of what I'm trying to do I you know and, and sometimes successfully sometimes unsuccessfully but I never want you know, the idea that somebody might leave one of my plays and go, oh, that's nice, would be wretched to me. You know, I want people kind of like either livid or kind of like snot drizzle coming out of their nose with tears or, you know, terror. Yeah. <laughs> Theatre is that entertainment value that you can reach to people in... There's not as many people behind that TV box. Oh, there's hundreds of people behind that TV box, but not as many in the theatre, and you get engagement more from it, or you... Because you you have, you know, said quite that. a lot in these podcasts mm -hmm. about, you know, you've, you made a choice not to really go down the, you know... Yeah, I've got, a lot, of, I've got a lot of problems with television. I think we're... Oper I think... Um, and, you know, I'll probably change my mind. I will change my mind about it. I'll probably end up... You haven't got long, pal. I know I'm going to die soon. <laughs> oh, no. Um, um, but I... What is it? I think... I'm, I've never... I'd, I've always had a very complicated relationship with religion. I never really believed in God since the age of about ten. Um, and I'm also somebody who's very, I'm very into like Twitter and emails on my phone. I love all that. Prolific Twitter. Prolific tweeter mm. or twatting as my wife calls it. Yeah. Um, uh, 
But without bringing those two things, what the theatre gives me, it gives me a space where I sit next to somebody, often sit next to somebody I've never met before, and for a while we look in the same direction as one another and we share an experience that's happening in the same room as us. Mm -hmm. And it's absolute removal from the dislocation of technology to engage in an experience that's real and alive. And it's also, an in and at the same time as that, it's an industry and an institution which is built uh, on profound levels of faith. And for an atheist to go into the theatre and find that actually, if I give my play to the literary manager here or the artistic director, you need to have the faith that they're going to read it as well as they can. Yeah. And again and again they do. Uh, and that if they like it, they're going to find the best director uh, who will work as hard as they can on it. And again and again that happens. We'll build the best artistic team they can and cast it as well as they can. And the actors and team will work really hard together. And continually that happens. The people in the theatre give of themselves to the most shattering degree. And then again and again, audiences come and they are open and they watch it as honestly as they can. Mm. And I think for a, a secular kind of atheist to have one special place where their faith is rewarded mm. is a fundamental part of being human, I think. And to answer the question, that's why you don't do TV. Yeah, for me, I think television is built on the opposite of that. Yeah, I think it's built on dislocation and uh, cynicism and the making of money. <laughs> Which is also what religion is. So, <laughs> I, I mean, that's might be a little bit controversial. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Um, you have briefly mentioned your father in this podcast, yeah. again in another couple of other bits of podcasts. Yeah. And again, we talk about themes that you return to, and I think you have said that your father is something that you return yeah. to. Yeah. Or a sense of home, home. or the yeah. lack of home. Why? Yeah, good. Why are they... Or, I mean, why probably is a massive question, but more of a what is it... That keeps you returning to yeah. them. Um, I think... Like, what I noticed in my play... I remember going for a, uh, a lunch... When I was resident dramatist here in 2000, there used to be cheap restaurants near here. Mm. There aren't any more, but I remember Stephen Jeffries taking me for a Chinese near here and, and suggesting to me that actually it's not true in plays that, um, that playwrights have to come up with new ideas or new stories every time they write a play, but rather they have myths or obsessions that they return to. Um, and that the really exciting playwrights return to say the same thing you know, and and I thought about that a lot, and then I noticed in my own plays that what would what we would find would be um, the plays would be defined by the characters who yearning to leave home or having left home would be trying to come back and finding it impossible. Mm. And I think that sits in, you know, right up to Birdland, actually, right even up to Nuclear War. Mm. You know, there's kind of it's present in Nuclear War this desire of wanting to get out of the house. I mean, that's played fundamentally about a woman who wants to get out of the yeah. house. <laughs> you know, So that desire to get out has been profound in all of my plays. I think, uh, I think partly it's growing up in a suburb, 
partly it's grown up in Stockport, partly it's grown up on the edge of something remarkable, on the edge of Manchester. I have very vivid childhood memories of the nine o'clock news being uh, uh, recorded in the studio in London and seeing Trafalgar Square, not Trafalgar Square, Westminster Square, uh, and and night buses in Westminster Square, and as a kind of like 13-year-old in Stockport living room thinking, I want to be there. I don't want to be here, I want to be there. Uh, and that desire to get out was profound. And also, and my dad died when he was 58, and he was an alcoholic who fundamentally drank himself to death. Uh, I, it's surprising to me how many uh, playwrights, male playwrights especially, although I don't know exclusively, um, have seen their fathers go from a position of stability or success to one of decline uh, and lose a lot of money or lose a lot of status. Uh, you know, I, I know many friends of mine who are playwrights saw their fathers, saw that happen to their father. I think uh, if that happens in adolescence, you realise the fragility of of, of 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 what it is to be human. You know, <clears throat> and uh, and and watching, you know, as a child, we if we're if we're fortunate, um, our parents offer us a kind of narrative of how you're meant to live a life. And I think watching my dad go into decline like that suggested a kind of uh, a darker twist to that narrative than I'd anticipated and you know I'm the age I'm, I'm now I'm 46 now I remember I clearly remember when my dad was 46 mm. you know I absolutely know that he went into decline when he was about 48 49 mm. uh, and died when he was 58 uh, and and I <coughs> It's an, a running argument with my wife because my wife's like, he died because he was an alcoholic, you idiot. There was nothing. <laughs> it was not, it's, so stop drinking. It's yeah. not inexorable fate. <clears throat> but there's part of me that kind of, you know, when I look in the mirror now, I see his face. Mm. Uh, when I and and there's part of me that is aware of the possibility of of replicating that. And I think it, I think, I think it's true that. Uh, nostalgia and creativity come from the same part of human experience I think it's true that you know we're not nostalgic about all experiences we're nostalgic about experiences that have been interrupted Mm -hmm. and I think uh, we're led to creativity through experiences that are interrupted Mm -hmm. and an attempt to complete those interruptions and I think the most profound interruption to my life was my dad killing himself through alcoholism Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of my writing has been an attempt to make sense of that damage or repair it in some way. Mm. You know, I remember, I really remember, yeah, uh, when my middle son, my middle child, my youngest son, Stanley, was about 18 months old, mm. the first story he ever made up, yeah? And he was sitting on our bed, on mine and Polly's bed, and he had uh, two, toy, uh, two toy panda bears, uh, a mummy panda bear and a baby panda bear and he was kind of playing around our bed <clears throat> and the game he was playing was that the baby panda bear had lost his mummy and couldn't find his mummy and I remember looking at it thinking oh my god that's amazing he's taken his biggest fear and in order to make sense of it he's made a story up about it and I think that's what we do yeah. uh, and I think that's what I do you take your biggest fear <laughs> and in order to make sense of it you make a story up about it and I think that's what drives us to keep telling the story because we can never complete the interruption and we can never make sense of it yeah. and that nostalgia behind things as well with using your music yeah in there. yeah 
because music is incredibly nostalgic. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It will bring you back memory-wise to a certain point in time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and sort of those cycles of things. Yeah, and 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 we use music to go back to those interruptions to try and make sense of them, for sure. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you for being on your own. <laughs> Thank you very much, Thank you very much. Thanks, Emily. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Royal Court Theatre Playwrights Podcast. If you'd like to listen to more, make sure you subscribe at royalcourttheatre.com or iTunes to get the next episode. You can purchase many of the plays discussed at royalcourttheatre.com forward slash shop or come into the shop at the theatre. Come to the theatre. Come and see the plays. We're at Sloan Square. Come along. Come and see everything. The Playwrights Podcast is brought to you by the Royal Court Theatre. It's presented by me, Simon Stevens, and produced by the remarkable Anushka Warden and Emily Legg.